everybody this morning to gather together. If you're new around here, again, we want to welcome you. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. We're glad you can be with us today. Uh, if you want to grab your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Or if you want to follow along on the screen behind us, we'll have it on the screen for you as well. But as you turn there, some of you may have heard uh, on the news this week about a shooting in Lakeland, and it was right here in our neighborhood where we gather as a church. And so uh, after I'm done reading the scripture, I want us to just all pray for our neighborhood together before we jump into the text. And just, there's, there's so many relationships that are represented in this room that are connected to this community in, in various ways and various years and decades even. And so I just want us to pray as a church and just see uh, what God does through this tragic thing. Just as we see in the scriptures where the enemy meant something for evil, God turns it around for good. I, I believe our church is called in this moment uh, to see God's goodness come out of suffering, out of difficulty. So we're going to read Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 22, and then we'll pray together. Hear the reading of God's word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, that's Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the way of fruit, the way of fruit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to your words in this text, we come with various emotions and experiences this week. Uh, some are tragic, some are exciting, some, some are sad and grieving, others are rejoicing. And so, God, we come to this text asking that you would show up in this moment in however you seem pleased to do so. May your Holy Spirit speak to us in every situation. May you call us towards yourself to be more and more like your son Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would especially in this moment, in this week, as we are grieving uh, the shooting in our neighborhood, as we are praying that you would uh, bring about goodness out of this terrible thing. God, we ask that it would come by your spirit. May you change hearts. May you change lives. May you change families and destinies for generations to come through something as tragic and difficult. And may we as your people, the church, be involved in that. God, open our eyes to see. Open our eyes and our ears to listen. 
Open us up to pray, to seek, to love. May we be a light as a church in all the ways you've called us to be. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for some of us, it may be hard to imagine a world without sandwiches. And maybe even today, as you're listening to this, it's 11, 12, according to the clock in the back, you're probably starting to get hungry. You might be thinking about a sandwich after church. You might be thinking about your next meal because you're excited to eat. And, and believe it or not, there actually was a time in the world where there were no sandwiches. In fact, the sandwich was created, it was invented, if you want to use that word, for the first time in 1762, as far as historians can figure out. 1762 in England, there was a man by the name of John Montagu. He was the fourth Earl of Sandwich, which gives him the established and beautiful title, Lord Sandwich. I mean, that's got to be the coolest title in history, Lord Sandwich. So Mr. Montague, as the story goes, he, uh, he had a gambling problem, and he would often go to these public gambling houses and spend hours and hours and hours playing cards into, into the middle of the night, and he would get hungry playing cards and gambling in these houses. And so in the middle of the night while he's hungry, he's desiring something to eat, but he doesn't want to stop playing, nor does he want to eat something and get his hands all greasy and nasty so he decides he's going to come up with something that he can eat while he's playing. And so he puts uh, salted beef in between a toasted piece of bread and another piece of bread. And voila, you have the first sandwich as far as we can tell. The sandwich was created. And from that moment, we've been debating what actually is a sandwich. Right? I mean, think about that. What makes a sandwich a sandwich? Is a hot dog a sandwich? You tell me. I mean, is, is a hot dog a sandwich? It seems to meet some of these requirements. And so people have been debating. And if you go on the internet, there are different definitions of a sandwich. But Mr. Webster defines a sandwich like this. A sandwich is two or more slices of bread with a filling in between. I don't know if that's your definition, but that's their definition. Here's what I found to be consistent, though. Everyone can agree about this on a sandwich. Two pieces of bread is not a sandwich, right? You, you have to have something in the middle of the bread to make it a sandwich. If not, you just have bread. The bread itself does not make a sandwich. What's in between the slices of bread, whatever type of bread it is, that substance, that is what makes the sandwich a sandwich. Now, at this point, you're probably like, why are they talking about sandwiches in church? What is going on? Good question. The reason I'm teaching you about sandwiches is because Mark, in this text, is making a sandwich for us. What's happening in the Gospel of Mark, and actually has been happening throughout the Gospel of Mark, is sandwich making. Mark, this Gospel writer, has been making sandwiches, whether you've realized it or not, and scholars call it actually the Markin sandwiching technique. Very creative title. The Markin sandwiching technique. And here's how it goes. In the text, and you, you can go back and read Mark, and you can see this multiple times. He will start a story, stop the story in the middle of the story, pick up another story that seemingly is unrelated, and then go back to the first story and finish it. 
So what you have is a slice of bread, something in the middle, and another slice of bread. And here's the thing about Mark's, or Mark's sandwiching technique. What, what it tells us is it's this literary uh, technique that teaches us to look in the middle of the sandwich. Remember, what makes a sandwich a sandwich is not the bread. The bread helps you eat what's in the middle. And this is what Mark is doing. Mark is helping us to see. Actually, he does it nine times in the Gospel of Mark. It's this technique to get to the core of the message in the middle. So what's in the middle here? What's in the middle of the text we just read is Jesus in the temple. We're going to look at a story where you've got the story of the fig tree, and then it moves to Jesus in the temple, and then Mark comes back to the story of the fig tree. But don't get distracted by the bread. What's happening in the story is really Jesus in the temple. And so you've got to ask yourself as we're walking through this, what is happening in the temple? What, what is happening in the temple? And here's what I'm, I'm going to give you just a glimpse. What's happening in the temple is God is coming into the temple to say, I'm looking for genuine faith. I'm looking for something genuine. I'm looking for substance. I'm looking for something there that I can actually eat. He hungers for substance. And so that's what we're going to look at today. How, how do we bear fruit? How, how, how is there substance to our faith? How, how is there something that, that brings life and, and transformation? How does that actually happen? This is what I want to look at today. And so first, we're going to look at the beginning of the first story, which is the fig tree story. And we're going to look at it in this context. Number one is created for fruit. Created for fruit. So look at me at this, as the story begins in verse 12. This is what it says. It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, <clears throat> he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now pause there for a second. Jesus, if you can imagine, is coming into the city after just arriving to Jerusalem the day before. If you were here last week, we talked about his triumphal entry, as they call it. Jesus has come now to Jerusalem. He's entering into the city. And as he enters into the city, he starts to get hungry. And so Jesus is looking for something to eat. And as he's looking for something to eat, he looks out on the horizon and sees this fig tree. And when he sees the fig tree is in leaf, that means it has leaves on it, that means it should have fruit, that there should be something to eat. And so as he gets closer to the fig tree, he realizes there's no fruit. And Jesus does something very surprising. All of a sudden, he backs away from the tree, and he looks at it, and he says, Curses! He says, no one's going to bear fruit from you ever again. It's shocking. In fact, if you're familiar with the Gospels, no other place in the Gospels in the New Testament, no other story of Jesus in the Bible ever has Jesus doing a miracle that's destructive. Think about that. Every other miracle we have of Jesus in the New Testament is creative in nature. Jesus is healing people of leprosy. Jesus is opening the eyes of the blind. Jesus is feeding 5,000 people with miraculous food. Jesus is raising the dead in Lazarus. Every time Jesus does a miracle in the New Testament, it's creative, except here. And so you got to ask yourself, consider this for a second, if every other moment in Jesus' life was creative, if, if every other miracle that he works in his life is that way, but here we have the one instance 
where Jesus performs a miracle of judgment, it's got to be critical. It's got to be absolutely crucial. And so why does Jesus do it? Why does Jesus do it? Here's what we got to first figure out. What is going on with the fig tree? Right? Verse 13 is actually the key to the whole text here. Mark tells us it was not the season for figs. Now, if you're like me, you're not very familiar with figs and, and trees and how these things work. But listen, I'm going to try to give you a quick overview, okay? Many trees have leaves and then fruit, not the fig tree. See, the way the fig tree works is after the fall harvest of figs, basically the, these little green nodules come out and, and they last throughout uh, the winter. And then somewhere around March or April, those turn into little green figs. And after the green figs come, then the leaves come, right? And so throughout this time of March and April, people would often snack on the unripe figs. They called them pagim. That, that was in Hebrew, what they called them. And so it, they didn't taste really amazing, but they were edible and, and people could snack on them. And so often people walking by would take the pagim off of the fig tree. But what's happening here is, is you could basically summarize it or paraphrase it like this, that it wasn't the season for figs, but it was for pagim. And so when Jesus comes upon the fig tree, listen to this, and he sees leaves on the fig tree, what that tells him is one of two things. Either it's summertime, which is when the figs are ripe, and that's what they call the season for figs, and that means you would see figs, right? Or there's something wrong with the tree. Because if you look at the tree and there's no fruit, but there is leaves, something is wrong with the tree. The tree at this point should have fruit on it. It's not the season of figs, but it is the season of pagim. And in the season of figs, you might find a tree without fruit because they're all laying on the ground. They've fallen off and they're ripe. But here, if you find one without fruit in this season, something's wrong with the tree. The tree is not producing the fruit it was designed to produce. Have you ever planted something in maybe a garden or a pot, and you go to the store and you buy those little bags of seeds, right? Have you bought those maybe from Home Depot or some other store that sells seeds? And, and if you buy those little bags of seeds, you'll notice on the bag it has a picture, just a little small picture that, that shows you what the seed is and what it will become once you plant it, right? And so you might buy a bag of watermelon seeds, and, and when you plant them in the ground, it should produce a watermelon plant with watermelon fruit. Or you might buy a bag of apple seeds, and, and when you plant them, it should produce an apple tree with apple fruit, or however that works, right? Here's what's happening. When you see the picture on the, on the bag, it should produce what it says it's going to produce, and if it's not producing that, something is wrong with the plant. Jesus, in a prophetic act of symbolism, looks at the fig tree and he curses the fig tree because it's not producing the fruit it's designed to produce. He's saying there's an image on the bag that it's supposed to produce and it's not producing it. There is no fruit right? It's a warning to us. This, this is, we're going to pause here for a second. It's a warning to us where Jesus is saying to us as the listener, he's saying, God created you for fruit. God created us to create fruit. 
right? And we got to pause here for a minute and before we move on, because listen, some of us in this room, we are all leaves and no fruit. All leaves and no fruit. You've got the outward appearance, the, the outward signs that there should be fruit in your life. But when you get a little bit closer, you see the inner substance is missing. It's missing. Right? It's, it's this religious self-deception, if you want to call it that. It, what, what it means is, is you, you're, you're going through all the religious motions. Right? You're, you're going to church because the kids should go to church, and, and you don't want them to grow up without going to church. And so you go to church, but you're grouchy about it. You're, you're tired about it. You, you don't really want to be at church. You don't enjoy church. There, there's a disconnect in your heart between what's happening in the worship and what's happening in your heart. Or maybe when you pick up your Bible and you read it, you can tell there's something just lacking in your soul that I don't want to be doing this. I'm doing this because I know I should and I know I have to. So there's this duty-driven relationship with Scripture. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. You can look at yourself and you can say, I don't know if this is what's happening, but there's some signs. There's, maybe you've got all your beliefs in order and you've got all your I's dotted and your T's crossed and your theology, but the truths of the Scripture haven't penetrated into your heart deeply. You've got all the, the busyness, right? You're busy, busy, busy doing ministry, and you're, you're doing this, and you're going to that, and you're volunteering here, and you're serving here, and you're busy, but there is no love for Jesus in it. Listen, you can have all the leaves and no fruit, right? The, the sign that you've got leaves and no fruit is usually pride. Usually you look at all the leaves and you say, wow, look at all that I've done. Look at all that I'm, I'm active in. Look, look at all my resume of religious activity. And then you compare yourself to someone else and you say, I justify myself based on this religious activity, but it's just leaves. It's leaves. Are you all leaves and no fruit? I mean, others of us in this room, we're, we're no leaves and no fruit, right? You, you don't even lack the sub, you not only lack the substance, but you lack the, the signs of any kind of life. And, and you might call that kind of an irreligious self-defeat. That's a, that's a way of just saying you've given up. You, you've given up, and I think this is where a lot of us are in our culture over the last three years where we've been through a lot of trauma. We've been through a lot of difficulty. We've been through a lot of pain. And what's happened over the last three years is God has pulled away all the leaves in your life, all, all the religious rhythms and, and activities in your life. Everything got jumbled up and shaken up, and now it's been hard to put all those things back. And you're exhausted, right? I mean, it's exhausting to keep trying to tape leaves up to a dead tree. You're just putting them all up there, trying to keep them alive, and so, deep down, you, you've given up. Unbelief has taken its, its residence in your heart, and you've said, enough with this. I don't want to be a part of Christian community anymore. I, I don't want to engage in, in prayer anymore. I don't want to talk to people about my struggles anymore. I don't want to go to church anymore. I, I just am unmotivated to do anything. You've given up. Right? There's no leaves and no fruit. What God is saying before we move on is, is this. He has created you for fruit. 
And whether you are content with leaves or not, doesn't matter. And whether you've given up on yourself ever bearing fruit again, doesn't matter. Because what he is saying is, I've created you for this. I've designed you to bear fruit, real fruit, real genuine fruit that God would put in your life that would create life out of you, would create transformation out of you, right? Don't be deceived. He, he really hungers for your holiness. He really wants to see your life different. He really wants to see progress in the areas that you've given up on. He wants to see transformation in the areas that you've said, I'm not even going to talk about that with people because I don't want to deal with that. I've got too much shame. I've got too much guilt. I don't even want to bring it up. God wants to bear fruit in that area in your life. God wants to bear fruit in the areas that you're hiding. God wants to bear fruit in the areas that you've said, I'll never touch that again. God wants to bear fruit. He wants to see the fruit of his work in you. That's his desire. It's his desire. And so what kind of fruit is he looking for? Now let's get to the middle of the sandwich. Number two, looking for fruit. Look at verse 15. It goes on in, in this way. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, this is the, the middle of the sandwich, okay? So the, this is where we're zeroing in, right at this temple scene, okay? This is the substance of what Mark is trying to say here. And what's happening? We're, we're at the temple, and the temple is the center of Jewish life. The temple was this massive uh, facility. If you can imagine, there's four different sections in the temple, and the Gentile court was the largest section. The Gentile court, it's estimated, was about 500 yards long by 325 yards wide. Think about how massive that is. And it was this huge place where the, the Gentiles were to come in and they were to worship, but what had happened was it got transformed into something else. See, the idea was that you would buy the animals for sacrifice on the nearby Mount of Olives. That's where the market was. It was right next to the temple. And then you would take your animals to sacrifice at the temple. But Caiaphas, the high priest in the time of Jesus, he decided he's going to set up a competing market right in the temple. So he decides he's going to set up a market in the court of the Gentiles. So imagine for a moment how chaotic and, and just disturbing and, and confusing it is on Wall Street, right? You go into that room, there's, there's papers flying everywhere, there's people screaming, there's screens everywhere. It's just chaotic because they're buying and trading and moving things around, right? Now throw livestock into that. I mean, that, that's what the court of Gentiles would have been like. They're, they're buying and selling all these things, but there's livestock everywhere in the court of the Gentiles, and this is supposed to be the place they worship. This is supposed to be the place they, they praise God and they sing and they pray in the court of the Gentiles, but they can't even concentrate. And not only that, not only are they pushing this into the Gentile court, they're taking advantage of the poor while doing it. The, the, the offering of the pigeons was, was for the poor people, and they're overpriced pigeons means that they're, they're exploiting the poor at, at the, the expense of, of these people who have no other option. And so Jesus, when he comes to this temple, he inspects and he finds it not producing fruit that he's looking for. Jesus is looking that they would love God and that they would love people, right? 
And Jesus, when he comes to the temple, he's looking for the fullness of fruit in their life, and he doesn't find it. Our, uh, about five years ago, our, our family bought a house to renovate, and it was a 1955 home, and so lots of issues, lots of problems. The renovation turned into a disaster, but we're living. We're doing great. Uh, but long story short, anytime you buy a house and you have to renovate it, or really buy any house, you have to get an inspection done on a house. And so when the inspector shows up to your house, he's looking for everything. I mean, this poor inspector, this guy is getting up into our attic, which is very low because of the, the roof line. And so he's on his belly, crawling through the attic, looking for issues. And then he gets out of the attic and he goes under the house and the crawl under the house. And he's looking at the plumbing and all the other things under the house. And then he goes through the house. He's looking at the electrical and, and all the different you know, structural issues that might be there. He's writing down notes, looking at the appliances. At the end of his inspection, he gives us a 67-page document with pictures and descriptions of all the problems on this house that we're about to buy, right? I mean, it makes you not confident to purchase this house, but we did it anyways. But 67 pages of issues, and the most surprising issue that he found was in the roof. This roof was an old metal roof that was the old style of roofs, is what I was told, that, that you uh, screw down the metal uh, plates instead of it kind of going together tongue and groove and so this is the old style where you have these screws all throughout the roof and so he gets up on the roof and he starts looking at the the condition of the roof and he notices there's a few screws missing and then he starts to look further and he starts to count them and he says uh, by the time he got done counting he just gave up because he lost count at around a hundred there were a hundred screws on the roof missing and he said, no wonder this roof is leaking in multiple places in the house. There's little holes all over your roof. But here's the thing. From the driveway, it looked great. From the driveway, you, you can't see the screws. It's not until you get up on the roof and you get a closer inspection that you can see it's missing a hundred screws. It's the inspection. It's the thorough inspection that reveals what the actual problem is. Let me ask you this. If Jesus came into your life and he did a thorough inspection, what would he find? If Jesus came into the temple of your life and he's looking for the fullness of fruit, what would he find? I mean, would he find a, a genuine love for God? I mean, what, be serious. Would he find a, a genuine love for God, like a heart that longs for him, a soul that craves for him, a mind that's meditating on him? I mean, it, it, and I'm not talking about a love for God that's like all flowers and sunsets. I'm talking about a love for God that's been through things. I'm talking about a love for God that even when things aren't going great, I'm going to pursue God in the middle of my pain and suffering. I'm going to pursue God in the middle of my divorce. I'm going to pursue God in the middle of my loss in my family. I'm going to pursue God in the middle of all this stress and anxiety that I'm, I'm experiencing. I'm going to pursue God in the midst of that persistent sin that's nagging at my soul. I'm going to pursue him no matter what because I love him. I love him. 
I mean, that, that, that's what he's looking for. He's looking for a love for God that burns for him, that longs for him. Not just some, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. I'm not sure if I like him or not. I'm talking about would he find a love for him that through everything you say, I'm pursuing him. That love for God will also show in your love for people. Right? If he came into your life, and he's looking for fruit, would he find a love that's overflowing into the lives of others? We know from 1 John 4, listen to what it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. I mean, John's logic there is pretty clear. John's saying, don't tell me you love God when you hate all the other people in your life. Don't tell me you, you've never seen God and you love him, but all the people you see every day at your job, you can't stand. Don't tell me you love God in your quiet time in the morning, but the people in your neighborhood drive you crazy to where you can't be with them. He's saying this. You can't, you can't segregate your love. You, you can't say, I love God, but I don't love people. And in fact, this is what Jesus is exposing in the religious leaders in the temple, right? The religious leaders think everything's fine because we're having worship services. Everything's fine because people are sacrificing their animals and we're, we're making sacrifices like God told us to do. But Jesus comes in and he says, you're doing it at the expense of the Gentiles. You're, you're excluding the Gentiles and you're exploiting the poor. You're not loving your neighbor while you're loving God. Right? This is what he's saying. It's deceitful. You've got leaves but no real fruit. Because the church should never be a haven for injustice. When he uses that phrase, the, the den of robbers, what he's saying is it, it's become a haven. It, it's become a safe place. Right? Oppression wasn't confronted here. It was coddled. It, it, was, it was taken care of. It was a place where it was fine to be unjust. And, and what Jesus is saying is the church should never be that. We should never be a safe place for oppression. We should never be a den of robbers. No, if Jesus came looking at our church, he should find a haven for the marginalized. He should find a people who speak truth to power. He should find uh, a, a safe place for, or, or he should find a place uncomfortable for those who are comfortable with oppression. The house of God is a house of prayer for all nations, for all ethnicities, for all genders, for all bodies and abilities, for all economic situations, for all family structures, for all people who call upon the name of the Lord. That's the fruit he's looking for. He's saying, I want to see fruit in the fullness of your life. I want to see that you have a real genuine love for God and a real genuine love for people, especially for those who've been excluded and exploited. That's what I'm looking for. Now, if you're like me, you look at that and you think, man, if Jesus came into my life for real, and, and, and he is, but if he came into my life and he started looking, he would find all kinds of terrible things. And so the question is, how, how do we bear that kind of fruit? If, if that's the inspection that Jesus is doing on our life, how do we actually bear genuine fruit? This is the last point. Let's look lastly at faith for fruit. Look at verse 20. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, 
the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Right? This is the last piece of bread. This is the end of the sandwich. They, they come out of the temple the next day and, and they're walking and they see the fig tree and Peter remembers that Jesus had cursed the fig tree the day before, but now he sees it and it's withered. And Mark tells us it's withered to the roots. That means it's dead, dead. It's not coming back. And what it is is this symbolism that Jesus is saying. Remember the connection, right? Remember the connection between the fig tree and the temple. He's saying this is a complete judgment. In other words, in the way that he gave a complete judgment to the fig tree, he's now giving a complete judgment to the temple. He's saying, just as he says to the fig tree, may it never bear fruit ever again, he's saying over the temple, you're not going to bear fruit. You're not going to bear fruit anymore. Now, you hear that and you may not be shocked, you may not be offended, but everyone else listening to what Jesus was saying would have been surprised. They would have caught how, how uh, you know, amazing this would have been because he's being more subversive than simply inclusion. You know, he's not just saying, I just want to bring in the Gentiles because I'm trying to be nice. What's happening here is Jesus is radically reorienting how we relate to God. See, the Jewish people would have picked up on this because they would have known all the way back in the Garden of Eden there was this issue. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they're with God in his presence, right? Perfectly dwelling with God, perfectly communing with God. They're walking in the cool of day with God. And then what happens? They fall into sin, right? Adam and Eve fall into sin. They bring corruption on themselves, but also on the whole creation. And God exiles them out of the garden. And do you remember what's at the entrance to the garden when they leave? It's a flaming sword of judgment. A flaming sword of judgment that says, if you're going to come back into the garden, if you're going to come back into the presence of God, you have to come under the, the sword. You have to come through the sword. It's going to require judgment. In other words, you can't just say sorry and come back in. You can't just say, I made a mistake and come back in. You can't just say, can't we get over this? It's going to require judgment. It's going to require death. And so when God later on sets up uh, his tabernacle with the people of Israel, he comes and he gives them clear instructions. He says, you know, in order for them to come into the inner courts, in order to come into the holy of holies where my presence is, they're going to have to bring death. They're going to have to bring sacrifices. And this is the same thing that would happen when the temple is built. They have to bring sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. In fact, in Jesus' day with the temple, it's estimated at that Passover, they had 255,000 lambs sacrificed. 255,000 lambs. It's death after death after death after death. It's this constant message that if you're going to come back into the presence of God, it's going to require blood. It's going to require death. It's going to require something from you. And when Jesus looks at the temple, this is where we're headed. When Jesus looks at the temple, he says, that's done with. That's done with. He declares no more fruit from you. The fruit of forgiveness coming from the temple is no more. It's going to come differently. And so he responds to Peter this way in verse 22. He says, have faith in God. Have faith. Why does he say that? Mark, Mark is switching topics here again, but not really. What he's saying here is, I want you to have faith because what's happening is Jesus is not just cleansing the temple. Jesus is replacing the temple. 
Jesus is declaring himself as the true and better temple. Jesus is saying, trust me, have faith in me, because what was before in the temple is now in me. And so Jesus would go to the cross so that he could come under the flaming sword for us, under the flaming sword of judgment. Jesus would be cursed for our lack of fruit. Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice that would end all the other sacrifices. Never again would thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices be required because Jesus had given his life. Once and for all, Jesus' death would be the death of death itself. And when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. The temple curtain splits because Jesus had made a way back into the presence of God. This is what he's doing. He's saying, if you want to bear fruit, you bear fruit in me. He says in in, uh, the Gospel of John, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That's his promise. Are you bearing fruit for God? The only way you bear fruit for God is through Jesus. It's through faith in him. It's saying, I can't bear fruit in myself And maybe you're one of the people who you say, if I look at my life and and I'm honest, it is all leaves and no fruit. And you've said, you know what, I don't know how to have fruit. Jesus is offering you the way it's through himself. Or maybe you're here today and you have no leaves and no fruit and you've given up and you've said, I don't know how to live this Christian life. I just want to live my own life and do my own thing. Jesus is saying, no, you can still bear fruit, but it's going to be through me. It's going to be through me. And the beautiful thing about faith, the beautiful thing about faith is it's not about the strength of your faith or the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. You might have weak faith, small faith, struggling faith, but Jesus says the faith of a mustard seed is plenty because the object of our faith is this Savior who has all the strength, all the power, all the ability to bear fruit in us. But we have to trust him. We have to turn away from our own and come to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we prepare to come to the table, we ask that you uh, would feed us. Just as you hungered in this text, you hungered for uh, for fruit in our lives, We, we hunger for you to feed us. We hunger for you to bear that fruit. We hunger that you would strengthen our faith, that you would encourage us in our failures. You would forgive us in our sin. God, you would help us to bear fruit by the power of the gospel. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table, may you work that faith in us to bring glory to your name. We pray in his name.